0: Welcome to Equine Assisted World. I'm your host Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Here on Equine Assisted World we look at the cutting edge and the best practices currently being developed and established in the equine assisted field. This can be psychological this can be neuro psych this can be physical this can be all of the conditions that human beings have that these lovely equines these beautiful horses that we work with help us with thank you for being part of the adventure and we hope you enjoy today's show welcome back to equine assisted world where we look at the amazing mosaic of how horses help humans and how it's evolved from its early days with therapeutic riding and assisted riding into the super complex world of neuropsych and emotional conditions and all points in between. This week I've got a phenomenal guest. This is Joy O'Neill, who runs Red Barn in Birmingham, Alabama. And if you live in the USA, you know, Alabama's always one of the forgotten states. And people often don't expect to see cutting edge work come out of there, but often it does look at Huntsville, for example, the tech center and, you know, the amazing work they do at the university of Tuscaloosa and so on. And Red Barn is no exception. I've been following the the progress of that work there for over a decade now and where it really excels and goes to the cutting edge, actually does this in many ways, but there is a real, they were one of the early pioneers in work with trauma. And now of course it's a relatively common thing to find people working with horses and trauma and so on. But really, Red Barn were one of the first to get into it on a, on a really deep level. And their work with JC Dugard, who I will let Joy talk about if you don't know who she is. And now their work with polyvagal theory and the vagal nerve and all of this, it's, it's, it's gone from the, oh, let's look at this thing. And because we know that it works to now knowing the science behind it, and it's really a, a beacon within the american southeast and i'd say within the u.s in general for how this type of work should look and joy's a really interesting person to be doing this but she didn't come from that background yet when you go out to red barn it looks so beautiful it's one of these beautifully manicured places you think oh it's gonna be like a fancy hunter jumper barn, and then you go in there and say oh no they do this really interesting work but They all ride really well. That's interesting. So they also have a showing background, but Joy's background wasn't with horses originally at all, nor really with neuropsych. So, and then Joy also has her own work that she does representing women with heart conditions, which she will let you know about, because that's another rather forgotten world. We generally think about heart conditions as a male preserve, but of course it isn't. So without further ado, Joy welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for all your kind words. I hope I can live up to them.
0: It's that very modesty, which, as you know, makes you do all that amazing work. So tell us who you are. Where did you begin? Where were you born? Where'd you go to school? And how'd you get into this funny old horse thing?
1: Oh my goodness. It's a, gosh, I'm not even sure where to start. If I start rambling, you'll just have to tell me and tell me to move on, not to, not to go too much, but. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. I've lived here my entire life. And my mother was married in a very abusive relationship. And it was a horrible relationship. She left when I was very young and we moved in with my grandparents and lived there for quite a while. And then my mom remarried and we moved around a lot. And so I went to eight different schools when I was growing up. And never in any of that time had anything to do with horses. Yeah. Kind of fast forward many, many years, got married. And my my two children and I um, got to be part of this blended family. And we were one one spring break, we were going to take all the kids on a trip to Disney World. And we decided that we just absolutely would not be strong enough to survive a trip, even to the happiest place on earth. And so we canceled the trip and we let each of the five children pick something that they wanted to do. And so my oldest child, Alexis, decided that she wanted to go ride horses. And so we all went as a family to go ride horses. And while we were there, Emmett and I just kind of looked at each other and noticed that all the kids were getting along and that that was very unusual for them to to all be together and it was something new for our entire family. None of us really had a whole lot of experience for it. And just from that one, that one thing, we just started going back to the barn for the kids to take riding lessons. And one thing just kind of led to another. And I saw firsthand how great horses were for kids who had disabilities. And that was kind of what started it all. Was so not you- going to so. general. <laughs>
0: hey, so so the moral of the stories. So good as this. He will spend your dollars on horses. Yes. I think a draw you would be on that one. Yeah. But so very interesting. So, right from the get go, there you are in a difficult situation. You have kids from another relationship. You've now blended those kids into a family. Maybe it's a little rocky. And the thing that yeah. brings them together is horses.
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that happened kind of in between, you know. There, but
0: no doubt didn't
1: didn't know how long you how much you wanted to get in. So
0: well, we 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 want to know the full story. We we want we want you know Game of Thrones version, but obviously oh my god you know it's it's whatever you feel comfortable sharing. And but what stands out from that story is that in that difficult situation and kids in blended families, you know it's it isn't all roses. We know this. It's wonderful what horses can do. To unite people, I feel, and to help them find their sort of tribe, their, you know, their, their, their functional family, because everyone sort of concentrates on that job together. But you say Alexis, your oldest daughter. So she was the one you felt he really took to it initially the most, but the others also of the five kids.
1: Yeah. All five of our kids, Rune. when um, when they were little. When, and now we were married, the kids were, he had a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old. I had a 4-year-old, and then he had a 3-year-old. So in 10, 8, six, four, and 3, and we all began to ride horses together. And it just really was a great, just a great way for us to be outside. I feel lucky that at that at that time frame, kids didn't have as much access to cell phones and iPads and so many electronics. So we really were just out at the barn together, learning together. And, and I think, you know, what, one of the things I know now that I didn't know then, and it just sort of happened, is that there's this concept that Dr. Rebecca Bailey from Transitioning Families and the Polyvagal Institute talks about, and that is the, the therapeutic dose of a conversation. And it's really just a few seconds. And so as I was trying to get to know my stepchildren and we were, you know, just talking or kind of going through some the the difficult times of being in a blended family, which I had also grown up in a blended family. So I I had an appreciation of what they were going through. But it's that therapeutic dose of just a few seconds. You know, so as we are maybe grooming a horse side by side, not having direct eye contact that can feel sort of like a lot of pressure. You're just sort of doing something and learning something together in a relaxed atmosphere. When you're outdoors, you hear the birds chirping, you have that support of the the community around you, like you mentioned, a failed family and the warmth of the horse. And then also what we know about now with people just slowing their breathing to match the breaths of the horse and the electromagnetic field of the horse's heart and its heartbeat, of which I'm certainly not an expert. But just all of those things combined just really helped us to develop relationships and to spend time together in a happy, in a happy place.
0: How long did you find it took for the harmony that you were finding when you guys went together to the horses to transfer back to your life in the home?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, you know, that's a really complicated question because at the ages that the kids were at that time, 10, 8, 6, 4, and 3, if you think about the 8, as they became older, those are just naturally more difficult ages, right? (laughs) Like, ask anybody with five teenagers in their home how much harmony there is. (laughs) you know, I I don't, I certainly don't want to give the impression that's like, oh, we all went out and groomed horses and everything was fine, never had any problems because we certainly had, you know, a lot of problems with five teenagers in the house all at one time. But I will say that now that the youngest is in their thirties, it's really, I, I think it's, like just the other week we were we were talking about it you know they're they're starting their own families and having children of their own and so now they're coming back and going oh my gosh I remember how we used to do x y and z together and I'm like I think I vaguely remember that but I thought that you were like in the car throwing a fit because you didn't want to do that but you know you were pouting or you didn't really like it and so I, I think one of the the fun, funner things about getting older is being able to relate to your children on a new and different level and to look back and relive those times and see that even things that you didn't think really meant a lot to them at, in that moment, mm. because maybe they were like extra teenagery at that time, that it really does pay off and it help draws you together later in the end.
0: Yeah, sure. I think a lot of us when we're teenagers, while we're pouting and throwing fits, we sort of Assume that our parents know that underneath all that, we sort of actually do quite dig it. And, yeah, and the I parents, of it. course, are, are completely mystified, thinking, oh, actually, I thought you were just a really terrible moon. And uh, there goes one of God's great jokes about how humans misunderstand each other. But how did you go from, I, I love this term you used about the, the therapeutic dose of a conversation. How, how, did, how did you transition from that then into suddenly running, I'm sure it wasn't sudden, this therapeutic barn Please talk us through that chronology.
1: Okay. So the kids all started writing verses. And so, of course, we I was there with them in a part of it. And it was something that, like I mentioned, all five of the kids were overnight. They got involved in other activities and just one thing kind of led to another. And, but when we were really in the thick of it, we decided that we wanted to purchase some land and keep horses there ourselves and, and the more that we learned about horses, the more that we realized that the place where we were taking kids to have the running lessons wasn't in the best of shape, and they were very hard working and we really wanted to do something to to make it possible for more and more people to to experience what we had discovered and so the the person who I consider kind of my, one of my main mentors, her name was Anita Cowart. And I was talking to Miss Cowart about it. And I said, like, you know, we found this land. Would you go with us to look at it? And we're thinking about buying it to keep horses there. And, you know, if you wanted to operate out of this, you could. And so we met Miss Cowart and we were driving down to look at the barn at the property here. And Ms. Cowart just began to cry. They didn't, I couldn't figure out what going on or out of her. And then she backed up a little bit, told me the the story about many, many, many years in the sixties ago when her daughter was killed in a car wreck. And Miss Cowart was just devastated because her daughter was her her best friend, her you know, her only daughter. She had three sons, but there was just something special about having a daughter. And she was Miss Cowart was just upset and angry with the Lord. And so she stopped on this very property where we are located and stopped and prayed. There's a really peaceful spot down by the river. And so she stopped and prayed there and she asked God to take the hurt away from her so that her anger wouldn't be seen as a lack of faith, but that she would still be able to find a way to, to show everyone that she trusted the Lord, even in this hard times. And so she remembered the Bible verse that said, when things are given up to, and still glorify the Lord, that they can be returned a hundredfold. And so she writes in her journal about kind of having this argument with God, and she describes it to like wrestling with him. And <laughs> she's like, okay, I don't want just a hundredfold more daughters. I want a thousandfold more daughters. And so more and more, her daughter's friends kept coming to their house to ride horses. And of course, the boys will tell you it's because they were handsome and charming. And and they are. But if you talk to the girls, they say it's mainly because of the horses. And so one by one, all those all those families just kept coming to ride with Miss Cowart. And of course, Miss Cowart moved at several times throughout that. Until one day that was our family. And so
0: And Miss Cowart was the person you've been kids, riding with all this time with your kids.
1: Right. She had owned the the barn. She was the founder of the the barn where they had ridden. And so as she got older, she sold the barn to someone else who who ran it. And my kids got older and they had other interests. And Miss Cowart and I would walk around the property and just talk about how much it had meant. And our family went through a really, really difficult time. And I you know, I told Miss Cowart I felt like the barn saved saved my life you know just having that sense of peace and being there and the relationship that I had with our children I felt like it wouldn't have been possible and how lucky I had felt because horses are very expensive and through some course of volunteer work that I had done you know I really realized that it like that there were so many people who wouldn't ordinarily have access to this and so Ms. Howard and I talked about using the back half of the property to set up a therapeutic program for people who would not otherwise be able to afford to work with horses. And, but it was always just kind of a dream, sort of like this, this thought. And so, but, and nothing really happened about it. And then I was, went through a really difficult time physically and the doctors could not figure out what was going on with me. And they started mentioning something, this little disease called Lou Gehrig's disease. And I was terrified because the thought of being diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's was just, oh, it was just awful. Talk you us to like Lou Gehrig's words.
0: for those of, those of us who don't know what it is. What is Lou Gehrig's?
1: It is ALS. So your body sort of shuts down, and you become like a prisoner in your own body, even though your mind is fine. It's what Stephen Hawking has.
0: The motor neuron wasting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I was just terrified. And so I have this big old scar on the arm right here where they did a muscle biopsy and I had to wait to get the results of that biopsy. And, and while I was waiting, I was like, oh, dear God, please, please, please don't let this be what they think it is. If it's not what they think it is, like if it's not Lou Gehrig's, I promise I will, I will start the barn that Ms. Coward and I dreamed about before she died. Like I'll do anything, just like please don't let this be, please don't let this be, and sure enough, it ended up that's not what it was, and so I felt like I had needed to keep my end of the keep my end of the promise, and so that's what prompted me to to live out Miss Coward's vision that she and I had walked talked about as we walked around the property. There's a a little red barn on the back side of the property that wasn't used very much, and. She had this vision that children who had afflictions, as she called it, being from her generation, that they would walk through this barn and that they would be healed as they worked with horses. And she kind of compared it to a car wash, that they would like walk through the barn like it was a car wash, be healed and come out on the other side, dancing and happy and just, just full of life. And so um, that's what, that's what I set out to do. After that, when I found out that I did not have Lou Gehrig's disease, and so I went back to school and got a degree in nonprofit administration, and we opened up in 2011, and then got our nonprofit certification in 2012.
0: Now, up until that point, you've been keeping horses. Your your kids have been showing, right? Alexis became a show rider
1: all of the all of the children showed for a while she was the one who has continued to do it for the longest, but yeah
0: and still does it to this day
1: and still do, yeah she right. does.
0: so you'd gone through this thing so you you'd had you found family healing through it, then your kids found you know that their, their sport well through it, some moved on, some kept going, but you still retained this vision that you'd had with Anita Coward when you decided to open had you limbered up by doing like some volunteer work here and there had you sort of tested out your your therapeutic biceps and all wanted you just jump in cold how did it happen
1: well and i had been a barn mom you know with all five of the kids showing horses and riding and doing all sort you know all that kind of stuff so I, I was i thought i'll put it that way at least i thought i was pretty new Knew more, at least, than I had ever known at that point up until then in my life about it. I felt like I had a good education at UAB, just wanted to teach me the ins and outs of it. I had volunteered for many, many years at different places, particularly a homeless shelter, which, of course, makes you infinitely qualified to go start a barn, right? (laughs) I Volunteered in a homeless shelter. I'd done a lot of programs with kids. You know, I... I really did, though, feel like everything in my life was leading me to that point, you know, and, and of course, I, I wouldn't say I knew exactly what I was getting myself into because then I might not have done it because it was a whole lot harder and a whole lot more work and a whole lot more difficult than anything I, that I ever thought that I would do. So I was sort of very blessed with the gift of ignorance in some ways, but I think it's I, I just do. I just feel like every single thing in my life, even all of the hard part and the difficult childhood that I had and some difficult experiences that I had been through, that they had prepared me for that. And and I feel like one of the greatest gifts that I had was the support of my family. And I, I certainly don't mean to, by extended family, and I don't mean to say that our that my extended family hasn't been through some difficult times because we have. But I think what makes it unique is that we have all stuck by each other through those difficult times and that I have never doubted that I was loved and I've never doubted that they would support me. And whether that was when I had kind of this crazy idea of starting this therapeutic barn, you know, my cousins brought their kids out and we practiced on them to, to, to let them ride horses and practice some of the different activities that we did. And it just all, it's just all worked out.
0: So you dive in cold and you feel, okay, I sort of know kind of what I'm doing. Then what happens? But
1: not really. <laughs> who,
0: who, who, who are the, who are the, you know, have you had much experience with kids, physical and, and mental challenges? Do you know how to get them on a horse? Have you, have you had any formal training or do you just kind of go, well, oh. we'll give it a go. How's it go? I give it a go. I would
1: say some of yes and not some of no. So, when I was growing up, there were a lot of people in my life who had disabilities, and I never really thought of them as any different. And, you know, just here's a, a little story. So, I grew up in this really small town way out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the country. And the biggest thing to do was to go to the baseball field and watch the youth sports baseball. And this field was named Billy Joe Field, Billy Joe Young Field. And so, Billy Joe Young, was a guy who, when he was in high school in a freak football accident, became paralyzed from the neck down. And, but he still loved sport. And so Billy Joe's mama would drive him up to Billy Joe Youngfield that was named in his, in his honor. And behind home plate, they had this big concrete block rectangle. And she had this big old yellow Suburban and he lived in a hospital bed. And so she would back up to that, roll his hospital bed out behind home plate. And a microphone was hanging from the ceiling and he would call and announce the games. Now, he, I wish, I know this is a podcast so people can't see it, but he had very little motion with his arms, but he could talk. He was a talker, a talker, a talker. And so when I was little, some of my very first memories were going to sit and watch those Baseball games while Billy Joe called him out and feed him a hot dog. And if you were a really like, if you got you felt lucky if you were the chosen person to get to go feed Billy Joe to the hot dog and learn how to keep the scorebook for the baseball field. Like, I never thought of Billy Joe as anything other than a great, a great person. And, and like, I was not ever raised to think. That just because somebody was in a wheelchair or paralyzed from the neck down or, or different. And, you know, there were certainly people that now I look back and I'm like, oh, I bet if autism diagnosis had been around or more known, then that's what, you know, uncle so-and-so would have been, or that's what so-and-so like, like it just never occurred to us that somebody that was different was less than. My Uncle David's sister had polio, and so she was, you know, in a wheelchair and sort of bent over. And my my grandmother's Aunt Cora, you know, came over to her house, and she was also in a wheelchair. My All of my family worked in the coal mine. And at that time, safety wasn't as common maybe as it is now. And so there were lots of people who were missing fingers and parts of their legs or arms, and it just never occurred to me that they were less than or that they couldn't do anything that they really set their mind to you know, if it was possible to do it without a leg or without three of your fingers or something, you know, like it was just,
0: so who were it was just a clients? great way
1: to be raised.
0: Who were your yeah. first clients when they came in through your door? You opened the doors of Red Barn. Who comes in?
1: So when I was first talking about, about opening up the barn, Alexis was going to school at Birmingham Southern or to college at Birmingham Southern. And she had had a speaker come to her class and talk about autism. And... So when Alexis and I were talking about the barn and my vision, she said, I think you should start by going to meet this person. Her name was Sandy Nairmore, and she was the executive director at a place called Mitchell's Place. And she said, I think you should go talk to her and see about having some of their students come out and be like the first groups that you work with. So it was actually someone with autism whose name was Reed. Okay, And he. I, you know, I went and met with Sandy. She's like, sure, I'll put up some posters. And so Reed's mom saw it and and she brought Reed one day and I had hired someone who was going to be a, who was a therapeutic horseback riding instructor, but she left the week before, like, made the appointment with Reed. And then she, she decided to leave and I didn't know how to get in touch with Reed's mom. so. Like, I, I just like talked to her on the phone. I had not written down her phone number. So I didn't know how to cancel the appointment because the instructor had left. And so I called Alexis and I was like, hey, I like I'm going to feel really bad. Will you come be here with me? This lady's coming. You know, I'll explain to her that we're probably going to have to close because the employee that we hired isn't going to be able to do it. Will you like, you know, so we'll just come. So I had every intention of closing that very first day because I just felt like I'd already failed. And so Reed's mom gets here and Reed gets out of the car and I look at his precious face and he is just so excited and all he wants to do is just pet and touch the horse. And I just look at him and I just I couldn't tell her that we were closing. And it that's what really gave me like I tear up even just thinking about it. But it was it was like in that moment, I thought, even though I don't have a clue what to do next. I know that I've got to do whatever the next step is because this little kid is worth it. And all he wants to do is kind of worse. And I know enough to let him do that. I'll figure the rest out as we go along.
0: Now, as you know, then one begins to look into all the methodologies and trainings and go, oh my gosh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a confusing world there. Do I, do I choose this one? Do I choose that one? They all seem to say that they're the right one or the only one so how Um, do I make that choice so did you then decide okay I'm going to look for some sort of more formalized training and if so what did you choose and why or did you just feel your way or was it a mixture of both how did it evolve
1: it's a mixture of both I would say that I'm not very a very impulsive person but I do and I do like to do a lot of research like look things and analyzing it but I'm also though very intuitive so I might spend weeks researching things and then go but I don't feel like doing this so it's like I, I just want to make an informed intuitive decision and so I just began to learn as much about autism as I could after going to to talk with Sandy and meeting Reed and one day my uncle Dave had called me and he he knew that I was learning more about autism. And he actually saw an interview by you on one of the Sunday night TV shows. And he called me up. He's like, quick, quick, turn on your TV. There's this guy and he's talking about autism. And he went all the way to Mongolia. And like, he's doing stuff with horses. You need to learn more about him. And so I did from that very beginning. And I know it's kind of weird to think about, but that was way back in, I guess, like 2000. 10, 2011 you know it, it, within those years and it's not like it is today where you can just google everything and you know everybody's got a website you know it was much harder to learn about things back then and so and then you came and spoke at it. like just a few months later you came and spoke at something in Birmingham and I recognized your name and that was the first time that we met and and so I, I immediately learned about horse boy and there was a lot in it that I felt like was just common sense. It just really resonated with me that you find something that somebody is interested in and you tie that together with being outdoors and with, with mainly loving them, which was Ms. Coward's, I guess, kind of her, her theme in her life was that love. Like if you love somebody, you will do what is the best for them. even That may sometimes be a hard thing to do, But if you love somebody, you will do what's best and and you'll help them in whatever ways you could. And just that sense of giving somebody that felt like they didn't belong a place where they belonged. And because I went to so many different schools and we moved so much when I was growing up, you know, I always had that sense of going back to my grandmother's house. That was that one place where I felt like, this is where I belong. This is, you know, like like this is, this is it, no matter where I was. I loved the Little House on the Prairie books when I was growing up because those were the things, no matter where Laura moved, she always had, you know, her family with her, no matter what was going on. And I really wanted to provide that for kids who felt like they didn't fit in because for so much of my life, I had felt like I didn't really have a place where I fit in where it was easy, it was always hard for me to make friends because we moved so much. It was, our, our family was, I would say, very poor in a lot of the time. And, you know, not having the things that everybody else had or not being able to afford to go, sometimes even on school field trips. Like there might be times I couldn't even afford to go on that. And, you know, you're the one kid who doesn't get to go do those other things. Everybody else, they're like, "Why didn't you go?" I was like, "Oh, I didn't want to go. Like, I never want to go do that." But deep inside, you are going, "Oh my gosh, I wish I could afford <laughs> to do those things." But it, it's like, I mean, I know it sounds kind of hokey or like a, like silly or whatever, but I just felt this desire to do it, even though it made no logical sense whatsoever at all. It was just something that I could not let go of. I just did not have any peace within my soul unless I was planning to do this. And I'm so grateful to my wonderful husband who had the resources to help me make that dream come true, because in doing that, I feel like it healed a lot of the things inside of me to be able to, to make that happen.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about how that side of the work has evolved. You've become one of the places that people look to in the American Southeast when it comes to autism, for sure. However, you also have this other really interesting side to the work at Red Barn and, you know, through your partnerships with JC Dugard and now Rebecca at the Equine Polyvagal Institute. I wonder if you could talk to us about that not every not every listener here is going to know who jc dugard is so could you start with her story and then how you got into doing the work you do with her
1: sure so gosh i was trying to remember the year it might have been like 2013 or 14 we had a very freak snowstorm in alabama we don't get a a lot of snow So there was snow and ice and everybody at the barn, like the roads went from perfectly fine to being undrivable within just a matter of two hours. Kids were unable to get out of school. School teachers had to spend the night with children in their classrooms. It was like a once a century freak thing that happened where the roads were impassable. Everybody just had to kind of hunker down where they were. So there were about 12 of us at the barn that day. And we had to end up all spending the night here. And for a couple of days, because like that's how long that it lasted. Although I I joke sometimes that I think it was more like a month, but it was really just a few nights. But And so like all these people are here and what are we going to do? So I began to just research things, try to find some videos or movies that we could watch. Um, to make the best use of that time because everybody was getting really anxious and worried. And I felt like if I could do something that would keep everybody busy, they would be able to to cope a little bit better. So I came across the story of J.C. Dugard because she was being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And so I watched watched that video. And one day, I hope you'll interview her and she can tell you much more about her own story, but just the highlights would be that she was, or I guess maybe the lowlights, she was kidnapped when she was 11 years old and held for 18 years in the guy's backyard and endured just unthinkable traumatic experiences during that time. And when she was reunited with her family, she met Dr. Rebecca Bailey and they did econ assisted therapy together as a way to help JC and her family reunite. And that really resonated with me because I felt like working with horses had helped my own blended family to come together and unite. And so I really kind of understood that. And so in the interview, JC mentioned that she was going to start a foundation to provide a curriculum to help people that wanted to do that. And so during the middle of the night of this snow freak snowstorm, I just have hours and hours to Google. And so I just Google tracked down the foundation. It has a contact page. I sent in information and said I'd like to learn more. And a little bit later, I received a message from them saying we're looking for an agency to work with. You're down in the middle of nowhere. Nobody would ever think of us being there. <laughs> we'll be glad to come. And that's that's how we met. And it was just. I think an instant connection of just being really like-minded. And and the more that I have worked with them and gotten to know them, I really realized that a lot of the things that were just good old common sense, you know, being being sent outside to play, not having a lot of electronics, always being surrounded by people who love you and care for you and just just all of those things that they kind of helped me understand why those things worked. Like bilateral repetitive motion, which is also a big tenet in natural lifemanship, you know, like all of those things kind of work together. And it's talk like, us through that. Oh, talk that's me. why
0: bilateral. Just repeat that again. Bilateral. Both.
1: It's based on the work of Dr. Bruce Perry, and it's bilateral repetitive motion.
0: Okay, talk to us which about which is.
1: That. I'm certainly not an expert. I want to I, I encourage people to go to go look up look up those yeah. the works of Bruce Perry and natural lifemanship and the polyvagal equine is to use, but they are, it's when it's like why you feel better when you go take a walk or when you ride a horse, it's the left and the right side of your brain moving. Like, think of it like EMDR, you know, it's the, the tapping left and right sides. Just Not everyone's going to know
0: these acronyms, Joy. What side is EMDR? The
1: it's just... It is just movement on the left and the right side that helps. I, this is how I think of it. This may be totally wrong, but it just helps your brain to organize what you're thinking and to come up with a way to work through it through difficult situations. It's that bilateral motion of the horse. And I think, you know, you put, you, you put all of that, all that language that you have behind it. I'm sure everybody is familiar with all the things that you, that you advocate. The, the rocking of the hips the moving back and forth the up and down the concentrating the, re- the repetitiveness of it it's almost like like even a chant or a meditation it, even though like horses provide it you can find it in walking biking swimming anything that you can just do that helps your helps your brain develop neuroplasticity it helps your brain relax. It can maybe even distract your brain a little bit so that you're focused on something else and you're not always telling yourself that same story over and over and over and like digging yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. And so I just, just the more that I've learned, the more that I realize, even just breathing, I was in the band all throughout high school. So thinking about how you were taught to breathe in deeply and to exhale It's like, oh, that may have helped if I came into band really upset or anxious or had lots of things going on. Even just doing that to be able to play my instrument was helping me to overcome some difficult experiences. So So,
0: tell us about how does this work now happen at Red Barn? So specifically the work that you're doing with JC Dugada and the Equine Polyvagal Institute Describe to us how a session might go and who the client might be.
1: Our average student is someone who has a physical or a cognitive or an emotional disability. I Googled our ransom reports and the average age is about 10 years old. But if chronologically, but a lot of those students have... A cognitive impairment so they may be operating on more of a six or seven year old or you know like whatever their chronological age is they're usually several years below that and we take those we take what we've learned about the importance of being outside about the importance of hard work and heavy lifting we have two occupational therapists who work here that really influence the programs and in the things that we do and we hold them to a high standard. We don't expect less from them just because they have a disability. We expect the most that they can do. And I would say that that's one of the things that our parents tell us that they love the most is that we do not have lowered expectations for their child. We have high expectations and we give them the, the support that they need to be able to meet that because as, as high as the expectations can be, that gives them a greater chance of being able to live independently or as independently as possible and to not be taken advantage of and to have a fulfilling life. And so we just incorporate all of that into everything we do, whether that's riding a horse, participating in our job skills program, doing some of our e Assisted Learning classes. We have one called Pencils and Ponies where they do things around the property that help them with their fine motor skills so that they can hold the pencil and improve their handwriting. We do one that encourages children to read through the Horsepower Reading Program. We do a class called Brain Builders, which takes a book. Once, it beats three days a week, we take a book for the entire week. The children read the book. It's like usually a storybook, a children's storybook. They'll read the storybook and then do different activities around the property that reinforce some of the concepts in the book, some of the words, like sight words, some of the activities. If it's a hungry caterpillar, we might talk about what what are good foods to eat and what are foods that give you a tummy ache at the end. And you know, how do you how do you plan all those things out? We might talk about just the different animals. They might learn their colors, their letters, their numbers. It just whatever it takes. It's just a really integrated So you're approach. combining
0: you're combining education with oh, and, education. and academics with your yeah. with your sessions with the horses.
1: Yeah, there's well, the horseback riding lessons are horseback riding lessons and then there are unmounted lessons that can incorporate horses but they can also just incorporate the environment. They can go down to the creek and look at listen to the water and listen to the birds and dig up worms and talk about the kind of worms that are in the dirt. Like it's just I mean it sounds silly but it's really just play. Like I like I mean, the, the difference is we just now know how good play is, Yeah. but it's not like we're doing top-level play for, you know, A-plus play. It's just play. It's just letting them be kids. You know, making, taking pieces of clover and making little clover chains and putting it around their head. And, and it's, you know, that's improving fine motor skills. They're learning to take turns. They're learning their colors and their numbers. They're learning how to get along and resolve conflict it they're i rest my case you're
0: you're you're doing academic tell us about the horse powered learning what's the horse powered learning program it sounds interesting
1: so it is meant to encourage children to read so it can be anything from children read books to the horses so that they can practice their fluency so they'll bring their favorite book and read it to the horse what a great idea if Yeah, you know, we can read books about horses. We can read to the children. They can read to the horses. They can read to each other. They can just go sit in a peaceful spot and read. They can, if we're talking about how do you make different words, they can lead a horse from like one letter to another letter to make a compound word or one word to another word to make a compound word. They can lead, like we might have the word, we might have the letters UP on an index card somewhere. And then maybe there's the letter C and the letter P and, you know, other letters on index cards on the other side of the arena. And they can walk over, get the first letter, take it to the UP on the other side, and they can say, well, does this make a word or does it make a nonsense word? And if it's a nonsense word, like, what do you think that word might mean? You know, like, they're just all kinds of different ways. It's experiential learning, but the main point is just to encourage them to read. Yeah, um, and to make
0: friends with the concept of reading, make friends with the concept rather than yeah. this is a stressful thing that you have to do, but this is a playful thing you can do. Yeah, I, I love it.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and if you can read, you can learn anything. Yeah, that's true. You know.
0: Do you, do you have, as well as the kids with autism and related conditions, do you have also a particular population with the types of trauma that that JC went through? Or is it more that you're using JC's insights to serve an autistic population, or is it both?
1: It's both. You know, there are, we have some children who do not have a physical or a cognitive disability, but they have been through adoption and foster care or foster care and adoption. And they have endured some horrendous experiences in their young life lived in four or five different foster care homes you are finally in a loving home permanent adoption but there's always kind of that, is this really going to last can I really let my guard down can I be myself is, is this going to happen we have a great partnership with an, an organization called APAC which is the Alabama pre and post adoption coalition and they have counselors who come out to to the barn and work with the parents and then we are able to do different activities with the children. And then sometimes the parents and the children work together. A lot of children who have disabilities can be easy targets for someone to molest. Because maybe they can't tell or they don't know that it's wrong or
0: but they can't run away. Like they, yeah.
1: they don't know. Yeah, they can't run away. Like there's there's a lot, unfortunately, a lot of children who have all of those experiences. So I think we just kind of take a lot of what we learn from several different places and are able to sort of synthesize that like it's a recipe or ingredients to, to cook something up that's specifically what that child needs.
0: One of the other names you just brought up in the course of the conversation, you talked about natural lifemanship. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. That was started by Tim and Bettina Joe, and I think, one, the very first time that we ever came out to Austin, we went out for a beer with Tim and Bettina. And so it is there. it's just natural lifemanship. The, I think they're kind of like the quote, it's been a while since I've been on their website, but it was, you know, a good theory is a good theory regardless of how it's applied. So whether that's with how you treat your horse or how you treat a, a person, just being a good, decent human being is is really important. And there's a lot about pressure and release in that. And so I think, like, we just kind of take all of those things and just internalize them and then synthesize them and come up with whatever is the best way to help that child. And it's often very slow-paced
0: Yeah. and very
1: complicated.
0: When you talk about the pressure and release, are you talking about that? from human to human, as well as obviously from human divorce? And if so, how, how might that play out the way in which that could be addressed or looked at?
1: So just like a recent example of that has been with an adopted family where, you know, a lot of times parents don't always get good advice from people or sometimes maybe the way that you're raised, you think, oh, that's how I have to discipline a child or to be able to do something and so we had an adoptive family out and the instructor was working with them and the the parent never gave the child a chance to do what was asked and the child that they had had a pretty slow processing time and so the the parent didn't like just thought I told you to do it why didn't you do it like they just kept 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 kept. And then the child would melt down rather than giving them a little bit of a moment to process, catch their breath, figure out what they were going to do, and then go and then take action. Like there was not, they weren't waiting long enough. And so the parent was interpreting that as defiance. And so what the instructor did is have the parent then work with the horse and watch them. If you just keep asking the horse, like you just keep, like, whatever you're doing, whether you're kicking your legs or you're, you're just nudging it along or you're trying to lead it and get it to walk, if you just keep on, even the horse is trying to do it, they're going to just, it's just going to be too much and they're going to melt down. And so the instructor was able, and then what, like to take that further, what Dr. Bailey would would say with the Polybagel Equine Institute would be, You know, thinking about how that goes from your amygdala, like where you're just sort of in this panic all the way up to the executive function of, can you think this through? Like, you know, from your brainstem all the way up to this prefrontal cortex, like you've got to give people time, especially when they have a cognitive disability, to be able to figure that out. And so once the parent realized what that felt like and saw it in the horse, they were then able to realize, oh... I've got to just step back and wait a second and see, do I see forward movement? And I, the other day I listened to your podcast with Joelle and when she talked about how she was telling the kid, just your left hand, just your left hand, you know, and and little girl goes, I'm trying, like I'm doing the best I can. Like, oh, I just burst into tears, right? Just like so many times people are doing the best that they can. And can you just wait it out and let them, you know, support them through it and give them what they need and like in considering all the other things that are going on. So, yeah.
0: Fascinating. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I did. But, but, like, really. Like all good answers, it freaks questions. So you know? I think, you know, obviously we've all made that mistake with pressurizing our children, our horses and so on, largely because we were raised that way. And it's, it is very difficult for somebody to, any of us, to rethink and readjust and slow down unless we're put in a position where we're forced to. It's fascinating to me listening that, yes, that makes perfect sense to then pair the parent up in a, in a safe way where they're not going to end up feeling shame, but still to pair them up with feedback where that isn't going to work. And then to see how a different approach it will work could really breed good results. And I think that's one of the great strengths of Red Bond is one often sees faces. Say, we, we do this one thing, we do, we do this thing, and this is how we do it. You're having gone up to all these methodologies and then drawing from all of them means that, you know, perhaps if you hadn't, say, gone to the natural lifemanship or something, you wouldn't have the particular resources or methodology to seamlessly incorporate something like that into a session where you maybe are actually working on something else with a kid, you know, to to be able to say, oh, okay, so in, in this moment, we need a bit of natural lifemanship. In this, we need to go more over here. Are we doing the reading, the horsepower reading? Actually, right now we need to use this more neuroscience approach. In this one here, we need to go more play. And I think it's a real strength to be able to learn and incorporate so many meth- methodologies and see how they actually connect, rather than falling into the trap of saying, no, no, these are all separate worlds. And I'm either, a, if it's in the sport horse world, I'm either a hunter jumper or I'm a dressage rider, or you know, I'm either doing, assisted adaptive riding or I'm you know working for the Paralympics or I'm doing this one kind of you know trauma therapy or something I think it can be flawed we horse people are often a little bit in the box thinkers rather than out the box thinkers but that was one
1: of the things that I loved about meeting you is I felt like movement method incorporates like all of that, it's like the umbrella for all of it in some ways because you have the brain and then the neuro piece and you have the force and the horse's movement and how important that is. You know, a lot of times in our programs, we focus on it for strengthening a child who can't, her body, because she can't walk because she's in a wheelchair or to to help her move and regain as much motion as she can because she's using she's in a walker or she has an assisted device or because they can't talk, you know, like we're, we're using the horse a lot of times to strengthen their bodies. But, but you talk about that and that's why it's so important that the horses be fit because I would not give someone a wheelchair that was uneven or, or rickety, right? Like, you know, we want the horses to have that good movement. So movement method and the things that you in all of the things that you promote are about fit horses and we want to treat the horses the same way that we would want to treat a person we want them to be happy and healthy and well taken care of as well and like movement to me movement with method and all of your programs encompass all of that in together
0: well you're you're kind so if Um. i had
1: to pick one that would be that would be the one I encourage people to start with because it it includes everything.
0: Well, that is high praise indeed coming from someone who does work that's as effective as yours. There's another area of your work which I'd like to ask you about, which is your work with Rebecca and the Polyvagal, Equine Polyvagal Institute. Can you talk us through, it's still to, to a large degree an unknown world, I think for quite a lot of people. So can you give us the skinny, like, Give us a little seminar one hundred and one on what is polyvagal theory. It's what, you hear this a lot these days, but it can be hard to get people to explain what it is. And then how you're, you've you've started working with the equine polyvagal institute, and again how how it affects and informs the work that you've got going on at Revlon. What is polyvagal? Theory. Why the vagal nerve? What's the importance of the vagal how, Or rather, how does the vagal nerve help us in this safe feeling that we can then be in the learning brain?
1: It goes from your brain to your gut and it conducts the oxytocin that gets you in the spot where you're able to learn.
0: Got and it.
1: so, and you cannot learn until you feel safe. And so, it is all about creating an environment where you feel safe and where you feel relaxed and you are just able to pull everything together in your brain in your body feel the oxytocin all the hormones and everything that you talk about you're able to get that and make your life better
0: right so yeah oxytocin we know is a feel good hormone we know it's a communication hormone it's why polyvagal and not just simply vagal? Why not just vagal nerve theory? What's the poly in there?
1: Okay. So I know just enough to be dangerous in this, and you have to keep in mind that my body primary role in the organization is on the administrative side. Like I love the organizational theory. I do not necessarily anymore do any of the direct programming because we have great employees who have been through much more training than I have but from what I understand and I know just enough to be dangerous is that poly means several or more than one so there's the sympathetic nervous system and then that parasympathetic nervous system and so that you're constantly the the metaphor that they use in the Polyvagal Equine Institute is that of a carousel And that we are all sort of riding up and down, up and down in that. And so you're going between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system. And that you're learning, like, suppose that you think that, suppose that a snake jumps out at you and that makes you scared. You immediately get to that. But then you go like, oh, wait, it's just a snake. Like, it's fine. It wasn't really a snake. It was just a rubber hose left on the road. So the, the faster that you can kind of travel up and down between those two states or those two, sim, those two systems, the better that you are. And that when you can reframe how you feel in those situations, if it's something where you have an intentional decision to do, like if saying that you're about to go, I don't know, like on a podcast or something, and you're really nervous, instead of thinking, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous. You can reframe that and think, I'm so excited. I get to do this. I get to share something. I, you know, like when you can reframe those experiences and look back and see, just see them in a more positive light, that that is also good for you.
0: Oh, like so right. to, to even able, look back at uh, past events in that way.
1: Yeah. Like to look back That's and say, well, like, that was a really rough time, but I can see that i've learned this and so i'll be better in the future because of it it's not it's not always looking back and living in those difficult moments but if you can find even one like silver lining or one good thing out of that you can cling on to that and change the way that your brain is thinking about those experiences and that that's not meaning that what happened to you was okay. It's not saying that what somebody else did to you wasn't wrong. To me, it's just saying, I now have a tool that in spite of those things, I'm going to come out okay.
0: Right. And to, to, to thrive and I, rather than yeah. just survive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that is like really, really important. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that in 2016, I was diagnosed with advanced heart failure. And that was a really difficult thing for me to go through. I was, for several years before the diagnosis, I had been telling my doctor that I didn't feel well, that like all these things were going on, and I had just been totally ignored. And then by the time I found out, it was an advanced stage. And I was so mad, like angry, 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 mad like that that this had happened and I just felt cheated. And, you know, the more I learned about what the future could look like for somebody with my diagnosis, it was really, it was really a tough time. But now I look back at that, you know, 2016 to now, and I think, man, what that did to change my outlook on life and the things that I thought were maybe important back then, you know, now I realize, oh, I'm going to enjoy every single moment, every single day I had just a chance to, like almost like a second chance at life to go back and say, okay, well, what's really important to me? What do I really want to do? So even just in something like that, being able to to look back and, and count the blessings in it,
0: now- it really matters. You're, um, the listeners can't see you, but I can, because we're on Zoom. You are a vibrant and healthy looking person. You are not somebody who one would look at and say, oh, yes, they look like they had advanced heart failure. So how come, how come you look so vital? How what, what's the process? And how bad did it get? Like, were you actually, did you collapse and they carted you off in in the ambulance or where was the point of crisis and how you come back from that?
1: Gosh, you know what, it, I think it's interesting that you were actually with me during that time. You were here in Birmingham and you, had, you came down for a clinic and we were at the clinic and I just remember being absolutely exhausted and I had gained so much weight and I was just so tired and I really felt like maybe I was burned out like I just it was just so hard every day was an effort to get up and to go do something and I had been going to the doctor and each time he would tell me you just aren't as young as you used to be you're working with these younger girls you need to you know walk more eat Drink more Gatorade. You're dehydrated. Just like all of these things. I was so Oh, That's, that's
0: going to make you healthy drinking Gatorade.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Like you're just dehydrated working outside. You know, just it was very demeaning. Very like, oh, we're not as young as we used to be. Like very dismissive. And I was just cranky. And it was just a really rough time. And I had been driving to the barn and a truck pulled out in front of me and it was like one of those near accident kind of things and and I thought oh my gosh I could have died and for a split moment I had the thought well if at least if I had I wouldn't be so tired anymore like I was that tired I was just exhausted I just didn't feel like myself I felt like it was just exhausting and so the next week we had a meeting at the barn and I, you know, I talked about how maybe I felt like I should, should leave. And part of our advisory council, one of the members said, like, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But because you work without pay, thinking of if you had died, but like, how would we come up with the money to have paid you to pay somebody to replace you? And but so that's an interesting perspective
0: was,
1: here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so his suggestion was get a life insurance exam, so that if something like that would have happened, you know, while we don't have time to to plan ahead for how we would pay for this, get a life insurance exam, and get a life insurance policy that would be payable to the barn.
0: What a he very It'd Just be a couple output. hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. He's like, yeah. it'd just be a couple of hundred dollars, you know. But like, wow, thinking about how you could have died, like. Like that was, which tells you, I guess, how cranky I'd been if that's what people were thinking. Of. <laughs> it's like, oh, don't wait, we get the money to replace you. But so we, so I went and got a life insurance exam. And it was during that exam that they did an EKG. Okay. And now I had been going to the doctor for years, planning gaining weight, hot, sweaty, unable to breathe, just all kinds of things, gaining unex, unexplainably gaining weight. And they did an eKG, and then I got a letter, and the letter said that they were going to have to increase the rate because my EKG had come back abnormal, and I had not disclosed my heart condition and I was like, "What are you talking well, like, about? Well heart, heart condition okay. I've been going to the doctor two years. There's nothing wrong with me. Everything is fine. Um so I called the insurance company, and they said, "If you'll go get a go to a cardiologist and get them to say that maybe the technician the insurance company had used had made a mistake, like one of the little electrodes wasn't on right or something like that. that They would honor the original rate. So you were in town and I had to leave the clinic early and you're like, oh, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. Everything will be fine. And so I go to this and I find out that it's not fun. I have something called the complete left bundle branch block, which meant that the right side of my heart's electrical system did not work. I mean, the left side of my heart's electrical system didn't work. So the right side was having to do all of that. And so it was just uh-huh. wearing down. And I was just stunned. And you and you had brought a couple of friends with you to do this clinic. We just all sat there and y'all were so supportive. And, and you weren't like giving me faults support like oh everything is fine everything is fine like you just sat with me in that disbelief and helped me come up with how am I going to go home and tell this to my husband and what am I going to tell my children and what are the next steps and what's going to happen and so just all of these all of these emotions that were going on and and I was so angry like I just was so mad so one thing kind of led to another, and I got involved with a great doctor at UAB, and she really has helped me to know how to take care of myself, and and so I'm doing great. So has has that so, electrical blockage
0: exercise. unblocked? Is your heart now working equally on both sides?
1: No, I will have that complete left bundle wrench block for the rest of my life. Like it will it will always be there, and it may have actually. Back in the early times, like before, as I mentioned earlier, starting the barn when I just didn't feel right. And they kept thinking that maybe it was Lou Gehrig, like it was some oh, yeah. sort of autoimmune something going on. Like that could have been
0: the early symptoms,
1: something and it attacked my heart there. Also, because of this, I kind of reconnected with a half sister and discovered that she has something very similar. So it could be a genetic component to it. I have a full biological sister who does not have exactly what I have, but she also has a heart defect that kind of came out of some of this. So it was really a a strange experience. And it affected not just me, but then also my children. Sure. Because knowing that this is something that I have that could be genetic affects them as well.
0: Right, right, So right.
1: so the main thing, if, if your viewers or listeners don't get anything else out of it, is that women's heart disease is so often misdiagnosed. People think that we are just like these frail little wilting flowers, like, oh, you're just worried or it's anxiety or it's just menopause. It's just, it, you know, it's very often dismissed. And if my doctor had just... Done a simple blood test, the enzymes would have shown up to show that I was in heart failure. Okay. So, my ejection fraction was 25 to 30 when I was first diagnosed. Normal is like 55 to 70. I'm right at that 50 to 55 mark now with medication and eating a low sodium diet and doing the, the proper kind of exercise for. What my heart needs, but women should always insist that their doctors check their heart, because it is uh, at least in the United States. I guess I can't speak. So it's 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 a blood test. So
0: all they have to do is ask for a particular type of blood test. What is that blood um, test? Does it have a name?
1: In BNP, BNP, in my situation, in my situation. It would have been a blood test could have shown it and an EKG could have shown it. And now remember, I went to get a life insurance exam and a technician gave me this EKG in the middle of a life insurance company's conference room. So it's not even something that has to be ordered specialty like that only a doctor can um, do.
0: Specialty or anything like that? No.
1: Yeah. It's just a simple EKG or a simple blood test. Would have shown this. So, and what I have discovered is that unfortunately, my story is not unique. That there are women all, all the time, every single day across the world, whose doctors are dismissing things that if a man went to an emergency room or went to the doctor and said, "My heart is racing. I'm out of breath every time I bend over. Like I get dizzy. I wake up at night with my heart pounding. I've gained weight." You know, sometimes I have a pain in my chest. You know, you would be immediately taken to have your heart looked at. But in women, and there have been research studies that have shown this, women, pre- women and men both go into a hospital ER with exactly the same script of what's going on. And the women are usually told that they're just being overly yeah. emotional or anxiety or having a panic attack. And the men are taken back immediately to be tested for a heart attack.
0: And what so proportion of those women die, just, do we know? What proportion of those women die?
1: It, heart disease is the number one killer of women. Okay.
0: okay. And I,
1: you know, if you asked me before my own diagnosis, I probably would have guessed that it was cancer, but it's heart disease.
0: So you are now an advocate for women with heart disease and, and just women to be represented in this. You're very, 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 very busy running Red Barn. You've got a massive clientele. I, when when I've, I've come down to be, I was like, how do you guys manage it? How do you see all these people? I said, how do you do it? But you do. Where do you get time to go and advocate as well? It's not easy. And I am saying, you're a, a grandmother, although you, I don't know how you can be a grandmother at 25, but you seem to have achieved it
1: aren't you sweet
0: but the i
1: think you and i are the same age
0: indeed and i'm looking i'm looking at us on the zoom screens and i i I see a difference (laughs) whatever your
1: grandchildren the age of your children
0: yes (laughs) okay rub it in (laughs)
1: yeah
0: but yeah so how do you find the time you're 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 rushed off your feet you're busy and i presume do do you still feel sometimes even even now with your self-care regime and so on do you still sometimes feel close to burnout or has that gone away? There's really two separate questions. One is how do you find the time for this advocacy work? And B, what do you do about burnout?
1: I guess I find the time because I tend to generally be pretty organized. So, and I think you you just have to prioritize things and try to, to make the time. I would say one of the things that I'm starting to have our grandchildren, you know, I really began to think about how lucky I was and how grateful I was to to still be alive to be able to see them and so to be able to spend time with them is my first priority and I think that is also good for the organization because without them I think I could have been in danger of becoming a founder who stayed around and in control for a little bit too long you know could have stayed in and so one of the good things about intentionally stepping back is that other people in the organization have stepped up to lead it more. I don't do anything uh, and I haven't done anything in direct programs in probably at least six or seven years. Like it's no, just rare. have all that
0: unstressful fundraising to do, for example.
1: But yeah, yeah. I do the fundraising and the, the human resources and the administrative things, but we have a great team and that's really very important to me. So I don't know. And I think it just kind of comes naturally. It, it's very integrated into everything that I do. What you know, do whether you, it's talking about the barn or talking about heart disease, it just right. naturally you're sort comes of
0: you're, you're now, you've gone from being a, a technician to being a, an advocate really for the programs and what you do while still, you know, providing all these programming. Do you still sometimes feel close to burnout? And do you have tips for people, I know an awful lot of listeners are constantly dealing with this. They either been running programs for years, you know, and are exhausted by it, or they're, you know, trying to get programs up and feeling that pressure. Yeah. And, you know, juggling their lives with it. What's your tip? How do you manage burnout?
1: I would say anybody who says that they are not on the verge at times of burnout, is probably just unaware that they're on the verge of that. And I think for me, I received my diagnosis in 2016. Most people with my diagnosis, if you search it, have like a five-year life expectancy. So I spent those first, you know, couple of years, like 16, 17, 18, really thinking about my life, who I was, what I wanted to be, my legacy, my children, just all of those kind of things. I felt like I had just kind of, Gotten back in a groove in 2019 with everything kind of going. And then, of course, 2020 hit the pandemic, and that was like being knocked back down again. I feel like we've just, you know, kind of getting getting back on our feet after that. I mean, not just us personally, but us as the world, at yeah. least I, or at least the world in Alabama. But what I find is when I'm when I get close burnout is and this was one of the things that I kept trying to tell my doctor is I've always been able to when I get close to burnout, I have sort of like a little system that I can do. And none of that was working back before my diagnosis. And that was I just take some time and I have I'm so blessed to have amazing friends and family. And I just ask them honestly and they are always great to give me honest feedback about myself and my ideas and my thoughts. And if I'm being cranky and, you know, need to take a break, I would go do things with my friends. I would spend time with my family. I would really spend time in prayer and just being alone, being quiet, Mm -hmm. just spend a whole day in bed, you know, just, just quiet thinking. Give yourself
0: permission to do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just like reconnecting with God. Cause I do feel like when I, when I don't have that strong relationship, is when I can start to feel burned out. But when I feel that I am living my life the way that he built and designed and equipped me to be able to do, that I have extra energy and extra time to be able to to go do and take care of all those things. And so, like, being able to do that, I love to crochet and watch Star Trek. So, you know, I can crochet or watch Star Trek. Yeah. And then, you know, just finding ways to reconnect with watching the kid, if I'm, if I feel like it's burned out at work, I could go watch a lesson, read, read an email from a parent, you know, look at our program evaluations. I know most organizations do program evaluations to be able to show the work that they do. I feel like we do program evaluations because it helps to prevent burnout among our staff
0: to be able to
1: see, you know, like the things like you may think, oh, this child isn't getting anywhere, you know, like They barely speak three words. They only held their head up for five seconds while they were riding. You know, all all of these things that seem incredibly slow to you. But then you read it in writing from the parent who says, when they see me turn down Bailey Road, they start smiling. When they recognize where they're going, they wake up and say, oh, today is Wednesday. I get to go to the barn. You know, like all of those things. When you get to see it and read it and you realize that your work is meaningful and it's changing lives, even if it's in a snail's pace sometimes, the, the breakthroughs are great, but they're not as often as the snail pace mm. kind of things. Or a, a former student comes back and tells you, you know, oh, remember that time all those years ago that you did so-and-so? And you're like, no, I don't even remember that time <laughs> then. And they said that meant so much to me. That was just so amazing. That was a turning point in my life. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like that is really, like, those are the things—at least for me—that that, that help. But, but I also think just having a reasonable expectation and being willing to say no, or or oh, even yeah. if it's not no, it's like I can't do it yet. Like you know, I've got to yeah, pace that's myself.
0: That's a good answer. Like, I can't
1: do it right now, but. It's not that I'm not interested. It's not that this won't work out. It's just, I can't do everything all at once. And that's okay.
0: Let me put it on the list to be done.
1: Like it it can happen. You know, some some other things have got to align. Some other things have got to work out. But just keep in mind what's really important. Yeah. So how do you do it?
0: Oh, I go ride my ponies. And I do actually increasingly... Yeah, I meditate and uh, prayer, meditation, you know, my, my earliest, all my earliest memories are conversations with God. And it's true that, you know, someone's listening and they think, oh, really, I didn't know you were Christian. It's like, well, I'm actually not really, but it doesn't mean that I don't believe in God. And it doesn't mean that I don't have a sense of the divine, but you can call it by different names. It doesn't matter. I don't think God minds particularly. Don't wake up going. Well, you called me the wrong really. I somehow don't think that's how that my <laughs> thought process goes. But but that that feeling of being a, a lot of it for me is often about gratitude. Yeah. To turn my mind and, and so if I meditate, it's easier for me to do that. And I've I can use a ride, a trail ride, as a meditation. I can use that as an opportunity for gratitude. Really, just look around me at nature, and be so thankful that I'm in it. You know. So I think I think like you say, you know, obviously, one's children, but it's it's these simple things, and of course, we're also very lucky because we get to work and live gotcha. with horses, and you know that just going down to the barn or out to the field, and even just looking at them, you know, and just thinking, gosh, you know, how how lucky am I to to be able to do this? But yeah, I, I think as you say, reasonable expectations. I, I think I, I've learned to allow myself to burn out. I've learned I've learned to not be freaked out and to know that that is a cycle that everybody goes through. Like animals go through winter sleep and that actually it's cyclical in the course of a day, you know, one, one tends to dip in the later afternoon. That might be a good time to meditate, a good time to take a nap if you can. And the, I never nap, I never do, but then they well, well, why not? Because then maybe I'll, I'll work better when I come back and, and watching my dad, my dad is 90 and. Uh, still going pretty strong i see when he lets himself not go strong and i've been watching him that way for years and thinking you know there's a lot to learn from from just the way you organize your day to let yourself go up and come down and go up come down and not always push through you are a push through most of us i'm sure most listeners here all and it's so the burnout factor i think is it's important just for us to think about because just given the demands of this kind of work it's inevitable i think never
1: ending like it it never ends it's 365 days a year seven days a week and if you don't carve out time and pace yourself you're you're not really doing right by anybody and even when i watch of course i'm not a worse person I, i wouldn't pretend to be but Even watching your videos where you're training with the horse, you say, okay, I got to where I wanted. That's enough. We're going to end right now and we'll come back later and pick back up where this is. So like we have to treat ourselves in the same way that we would treat our horses.
0: It's a very good point.
1: Like, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't just keep pushing and pushing and pushing a horse. Because you know that if you give them time, that time to rest, or at least that's what you say in your videos, right? <laughs> like, if you give them that time to rest, yeah. that the next time you go back, they're going to get there and they're going to be better. Yeah. So yeah,
0: less is more always. Yeah.
1: Less, yeah. Like, so treat yourself like you would your own horse. Held that for the best advice.
0: That's brilliant advice. Or well, listen. Would,
1: a good yeah. horse.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> to, to, if you're yes. good at
1: horses. Like, if you're good at horses, treat them how you would treat your horse. If you're a jerk that's not good with horses, don't treat them how you would treat that. But then.
0: Very good point. Yes, I was once told by a, a stunt man who this, got me into riding in movies when I was in my early 20s at college. And he said, he was an Irish guy called Bronco McLaughlin. He said, Rivers, you can't love your horse. You must hate your horse. must hate, your hate yours. I was you, God, Bronco. I never want to hate my horse." It's funny hearing you say that and it will make a great story, but that's not how I want to go no. no. And it's hilarious you saying that you're not a horse person. So for, for, for the listeners, you've probably gathered that Joy is modest. The program that she runs also with her daughter, Alexis, who is a very accomplished horseman, And of course, all the, the employees, it's, it's exemplary what they do. The lunging programs, the in-hand programs, the muscling programs, the mental well-being for the horse. It's, it's, it's gold standard. And I would recommend people to go down there. So with that, I think I'd like to let people know, or have you let people know, how can they get with you and learn more? There's a lot going on down at Red Barn. There's, you've got the polyvagal stuff. You've got the lifemanship stuff. Obviously, there's Boy, but there's, there's more than that too. And the work that you do with the JC Dugard and her foundation. And there's, so there's a lot of it. There's a lot of education and information available to people down there. How can they get in touch with you, Joy?
1: Our website is the best way to, to I guess, email me if you just go to the redbarn.org And if you fill out pretty much any of those forms on the the website, there's at the bottom of each page, there's a join our database or learn more.
0: So it's redbarn.org. Redbarn. Red the
1: Redbarn. The, the
0: Redbarn.
1: I know. My Southern accent comes out. The Redbarn. <laughs> Not more. T H E R E T B A R N. The Red Barn
0: Great. And yeah. can they come down, seminars, learn stuff, be in touch with you guys educationally? Sure. Mentoring.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, I would. I always love to help anybody in any way that we can. Because so many people have helped us, and I just feel like it's a great way to pay it forward. And you know, when we when we first started the barn, it was. I feel like just something that helped our own children. And I felt so fortunate and so lucky to have that opportunity. And I want to make my life goal or, you know, and I've thought about this a lot, and especially after my diagnosis, like, what do you want to be known for? And mm-hmm. I think, I mean, there are lots of things, but just professionally, I want to be known as someone that helped make it possible for children especially with physical cognitive and emotional disabilities to have the chance to work with horses to improve their lives and people are more than welcome to come and and see what we have learned but the first advice I always give people is to go to your website and to go through and and look at it because I, I really do believe that a, a good foundation or a knowledge and movement method and how the horses are treated and how people learn in their brains like that sets the tone, and for all the other things that they can learn, and you know they might have a a special interest and want to learn learn also some other tools to have in that, but they're welcome to call me, but I'm just going to tell them to go back to you so
0: well, we'll back we'll bop them back and forth. That is very kind. for those who do want to contact us, yes, remember it's if you move a method horse by method Athena, it's n t l s dot c o not dot com the other one, .co, ntls.co. And if people are interested in the horse training and personal development programs, that's longridehome.com. However, do go to the redbarn.org and do contact Joy and her team. There's a ton to learn and there's not many people, not many places that bring it together so holistically. While maintaining this level of service, it's a lot of clients. Um, it's also very physically beautiful. Place. I think a lot of people don't realize how beautiful Alabama is till they get down there. And those foothills of the Appalachians that are up there in that Birmingham area. So it's a very special landscape. And you mentioned that place down by the water where Anita Cowart would go and pray. i have been to that place. I know, I know exactly that river crossing. It is sublime. So yeah, I would recommend going there to learn. They're very, very modest. But they have an awful lot to teach. So, Joy, I can't wait to the next time I'm down there. Hopefully, in November. I would love it. And uh, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, um, well, thank. We've learned a lot. Thank
1: you for giving the chance, and thank you for being such an important part of everything that happens here at the barn, and then also to me personally. Thank you.
0: You are sweet. Well, likewise. And uh, good. I will do a follow up. So what Joy doesn't know is that this is actually she's got to come on again. So everyone wow. send in your questions to her, your questions about polyvagal, your questions about lifemanship, your questions about the heart stuff, your questions about how all these things relate together. And I will give them to Joy and Joy will answer them and we'll pull her back on, kicking and screaming, put her back up here and she'll answer your questions directly. Well,
1: may, I'll be there for- Next time, because I'll know what the questions are. How the- Exactly,
0: exactly. Maybe, if, we, if we're good to you. Okay, yeah. All right. The
1: deer in the headlights. <laughs> like, oh are gosh.
0: <laughs> Give you a pair of minutes.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Joy. I've, I've enjoyed it immensely, as always. And we'll see Same, you again yeah. soon. Yeah, later. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horse Boy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to RupertIsaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.